Let's pray together. Father, this is such glorious truth. We have sung this truth. We have read truth this morning. And as we continue in studying your word together, we ask that the Holy Spirit teach, comfort, and strengthen us. We thank you for hearing this prayer. And we have confidence of your answer as we pray this according to your will. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we finally arrive at a verse that we have referenced over and over again as we have been studying through this letter of 1 John. Perhaps even by now you have memorized this verse, verse 13 of chapter 5. It is considered one of the most important verses in this entire letter. And here we begin the epilogue of 1 John. And it begins in verse 13, which we have heard many times in previous weeks. The overarching purpose of the Apostle John writing this letter. That those who profess faith in Jesus Christ can know for certain that they are saved and have eternal life. Beloved, we rejoice in that, right? That we know for certain that we are his. John wrote his gospel so that people would believe in the name of Jesus and have life in his name, but he writes this letter so those who do believe know that they have eternal life. Why is that such a big deal? If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you realize that sin still dwells in your flesh. And are there not times that you question your own salvation? How could I have thought that? How could I have said that? How could I have done that? And yet John writes and says, these things I have written that you might know that you have eternal life. So the challenge for the apostle John, as he pens this, is to give assurance to believers without giving false assurance to false converts. Those who are deceived to think that they know Christ. Those who are deceived to think all is okay on judgment day, when in reality it is not. So the apostle John has to carefully pen this letter that we as the beloved, those chosen by God, would have assurance of our salvation. That we wouldn't think, well, maybe I'm his, or, or perhaps I'm his, or I, I hope I'm his. But that you, beloved, would know that you are his. That you would be able to rest in that. And this is exactly the truth that John writes throughout this letter. He says, you can absolutely know for sure that you belong to Christ. And to be sure of that, he gives three different tests to examine, to see the fruit of God's spirit in the believer. That you could look at that evidence from that fruit and say, surely I am his. This is work of his grace in my life. One of those tests is doctrine that you know the right Jesus the Jesus declared in Scripture, not a Jesus of our own imagination. 
the one who has eternally existed as the second person of the Godhead, the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was the God-man, fully God and fully human, the one whose earthly ministry was testified by the Father and by the Spirit, the one who came in the flesh to live a perfect, sinless life, and to die to pay the debt of his people, and then to raise from the grave to conquer sin and death. John says it's this Jesus you must know. You say, wow, you've said this before. Yes, he's the same Jesus. The same Jesus that John continues to declare, you must know this Jesus. And there must also, he goes on to say, there's evidence of his grace in your life. And one of those evidences is through obedience, a desire to obey Christ, a desire that shows that there is a change, a transformation from within, that us who were once darkness are now light. Those of us who were once rebels against God now desire to please him. Those who once longed after unrighteousness and self-centeredness now live in righteousness and God-centeredness. We've gone from takers to givers. We've been radically changed. John unpacks this in his letter saying, this is evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in you and that you are His. That change also produces love. And throughout the letter, he talks about love. He says this is a commandment that we've had from the beginning, that we've heard from Jesus himself, from the lips of Jesus, that we're to love one another. That evidence of love flowing through us, God's love, brings us assurance that we know him. And so John uses three, these three tests to ensure that the believer knows they have assurance in Christ, that they have eternal life, but also to wean out those who would have a false assurance. That there are these tests that must be passed. But God's desire, his will, is that his people would have assurance. He is Father. That we would come to him as Father. That we are his children. That we're not guessing, are you my Father? But we would know that he is Father. He wants his truth to comfort us. He wants his truth to bring us joy. The same God whose will is to save us, his will is also to sanctify us. And if you're a note taker, the title of this morning's sermon is God's Will Be Done. If you have a Bible this morning, we are in 1 John chapter 5, beginning the epilogue of this letter this morning. The verses we'll be honing in on this morning are verses 13 through 15, but we'll read the entire epilogue together this morning. And so if you are able this morning to stand and honor the public reading of God's Word, I invite you to stand to your feet, open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. Starting at verse 13, we'll read this morning to the end of the letter. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests 
that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that should we pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Please be seated, church. John's desire, again, is that we would have assurance. But that assurance of salvation, there is also assurance of sanctification. That we would grow in godliness. That the same God who saved us is the same God who will change us. That he doesn't leave us where we were. And so as we look at this text this morning, we'll chunk it up in just two sections. We'll see in verse 13 that God's will be done in salvation. And then in verses 14 and 15, we'll see God's will be done in sanctification. The same God who saves is the same God who does the work of making us holy. Look again with me at this theme verse, verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I want to stop before I go into the looking at God's will be done in salvation and just talk real quick about knowing that you have assurance. You may come across people who say there is no way that you can know for sure that you have eternal life. There's no way that you can know for sure that you are saved. You need to be able to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and say, please read. It is there for our good. It is there for our comfort. It is there to fulfill our joy that we know for certain that we have eternal life. And so as we talk about God's will be done in salvation, I'm going to break this up into three parts. So you break up a lot of things into parts. Well, those of you that take notes, you really like that. Those of you that don't, you're just like, I'm trying to follow along. God's will be done in salvation. The first thing is he elects his people for salvation. We sung about it this morning. I want you to go back to maybe some not-so-fond memories. Maybe back to grade school when the teacher would divide up the class into teams. And you knew the activity in front of you. Maybe it was an academic activity. Maybe it was a, a sport activity. And perhaps you weren't very gifted in that area. And you began to tremble. Oh, no, not this again. And the teacher said, okay, I need two captains, one from each team. All right, you and you. Pick your teams. And one by one, they picked 
their teams until you already knew the outcome. With this activity, nobody in their right mind was going to pick you. And so it got to the last one. I mean, they were saying, you're on my team. You're on my team. And when you were the last one standing, they did not say, you're on my team. The other captain said, they're on your team. Like they didn't have a choice. They were given out. Beloved, that is not how God chooses us. He does not see what might be good or what we're gifted at or anything else. God chooses because of his love and because of his mercy. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. The choosing is of God. And he chooses not based upon any skill set. No works done by us. He chooses. Now, I know some of us might stop and consider, but Robert, you don't know me that well. I mean, if you knew me, God would most surely choose me. Whereas many of you would say, well, I know if you knew me, you would know God probably would not choose me. I can look in the mirror and say, surely I would not have chosen me. But God chooses. You know, it's interesting, after the Holy Spirit had descended upon the apostles and they began preaching, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching. And in verse 48, we read this. When the Gentiles heard his preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God had already chosen. He had chosen who would believe. So what's the big deal? Well, let me, let me give you some more. Ephesians chapter 1, some of you are very familiar with Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. But in chapter 1 in verse 4, we read that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, we read that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He chose you, beloved, before the foundation of the world. Verse 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Twice we hear about his will. His will be done. That he chose his people. He did the choosing. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So why are we doing this? Why are we in this activity right now of understanding that God chose us? Because when you put it under a microscope, eternal life, that we would have assurance, we have to understand the one who started, the one who chose, the one who initiated is God. Why do we know that we have eternal life? Because he chose us. Are you following me? 
Think about those who think, well, I chose. What does that mean? They can unchoose. Think about the logic. But if God chooses, we are his. You follow me? Paul writing to Timothy says that God did this before the ages began. We've been predestined. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, many of you know this very well. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? He who began the good work is faithful to complete it. It matters that he chose you. The fact that he did the choosing gives us assurance. God chose. And so stop it. I know this is not, you're like, whoa, that's something new. I know for some of you, you're like, no, we know this. But do you stop and meditate on it? The gravity of it. What does it mean that God chose you for salvation in Christ? A God who is faithful. Our Jesus who says he will never leave you nor forsake you. It means you are his. So not only do we have God's will be done in the fact that he has chosen us, but also that he sends his son to be his people's savior. Jesus came to be savior of the world. 1 John chapter 4, if you turn back just one page, John penned this earlier. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now think about it. Put it in order. God chose his people before the foundation of the world. So as the Savior came, guess who would repent and believe? Those whom were chosen. If you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ and you have repented and trusted him, you have been chosen by the Father. And Christ came to save. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God is our Father. We go to him as Abba. Because he has chosen us. He has elected us. He has redeemed us. You know, Christ came and had a mission. It was to save sinners. Don't jump out of your seat, but are there any sinners in here? I have one hand raised. That was good. Okay. He didn't jump out of his seat, but he raised his hand. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save those who had been chosen by the Father for salvation in Christ, Jesus would come and walk the earth and give his life in their place. You know, it's interesting, something that's often overlooked is you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets pregnant. Joseph finds out she's with child, and being a just man, he looks to put her away quietly, to divorce her quietly, as the law would command him to do. And yet an angel appears to him in a dream. Let me read to you what the angel said. The angel said, she will bear a son. This is Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Did you hear that? Did you hear the little nuance that was said there? He will save his people from their sins. Which means if you are in Christ today, this is all a work of God. He has chosen you. Jesus came for you. The Holy Spirit has given you opportunity to repent, to gift you with repentance and faith. Jesus died so we could live. God's will be done in what we sang earlier. We just finished a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. A song we should sing joyfully, but a song we should sing with tears coming down our eyes. Because if we could lose our salvation, surely we would have done so already. But because this is a work of God who before the foundation of the world has chosen his people and sent his son to redeem those people, Christ our Lord will hold us fast. Listen to these comforting words of Jesus. We read in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What do you think the word never there means in Greek? I'll give you a hint. There's no hidden meaning there. He will never cast them out. Those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world will be his. They will come to him, and he will hold them fast. Jesus continues and says this. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, which means all the way till the end, he will be faithful. That those who are Christ will make it all the way to glorification. That was John 6, 39. In chapter 10 of John, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We've said it before, and you've heard the argument. People say, well, that says no one can snatch them out of his hand. But what about the person who jumps out of their hand, out of his hand? You didn't read the entire thing. He says this. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. What does that mean? more powerful, has all authority. And so if he is going to keep you, nobody, not even yourself, can change that. Are you following me? So the words of Jesus. Jesus that would live a perfect life, who would fulfill the law on our behalf, the one who would die a death that we deserve, paying the full debt of our sin, the one who would rise from the grave to conquer sin and death, he is the same Jesus that still to this day lives to make intercession for us. So what does that mean? Jesus lives to this day. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. John puts it this way. He says, we have an advocate. He calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says he's with the Father. Jesus right now is interceding for you. Why? Because he's holding you fast. He's ensuring that you make it till the end. You ever had those times where you feel like getting the little white flag? <laughs> like, I surrender. I'm done. I want to throw in the towel. How is it that we persevere? Because Christ is holding us fast. It is because his work. When we talk about the will of God, God's will is our salvation. That he chose his people for salvation. That he sent Christ to save his people. And now it's Christ himself that holds us fast. That means God does it all. You say, well, cool, I'm just going to take a nap and check out. Well, God's will is also our sanctification. That we grow in holiness. And so while he does it all, it's even him who works in us and through us for his good pleasure. We are to abide in him. We're to walk in step with his spirit. And so this same God who says, you have assurance of salvation because I have done it all. I have chosen you. I have sent my son to die for you. I have called you unto him. Remember, no one can come to Christ unless the father calls him. He's done it all. So no wonder he wants us to have assurance. When we have assurance of faith, we praise him. We glorify him. We thank him. He's the one that does it all. Our assurance is in the almighty one. The one who reigns over all things. If he says that we are his, guess what? We are his. You following me? You following the logic here? It is God who does this. Nothing can change that. Everyone who is gifted with repentance and faith in Christ Jesus has eternal life, and that cannot be taken away because that is God's will, our salvation. But as I alluded to earlier, not only is it God's will for us to be saved, but it's also God's will for us to be sanctified. And that's where we're going to dig in the second half of this sermon this morning, is God's will is our sanctification. And so if you look back to 1 John chapter 5, John's going to talk about prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The Apostle John writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, before we get in this whole asking part of prayer, John uses a word here for the fourth time in this letter, and it's the word confidence. If you'll backtrack with me a little bit, the times that he's mentioned this word confidence in this letter, turn back a page or two to 1 John chapter 2. To have this assurance, this confidence. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 
read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, some of you might remember as we studied through that, to, to abide in him, to walk in him, to live in him, that we would have confidence that as he appears, we're not doing things that are carnal and things according to what our flesh desired, but we're walking in faith. That we would have confidence as he appears. First John chapter 3, he uses this word again. Look at First John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart con does not condemn us, meaning if we have forgiveness in Christ, he says we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. If we know that we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, then we have confidence before the Father. Christ has paid our penalty. That word confidence, to stand before God, to be assured that we will be welcomed in. That we won't be him and a hon going, I don't know what's going to happen. There'll be no fear. We'll have full assurance. Again, in 1 John chapter 4, John uses it. So chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and as we'll see this morning, chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. If you remember, in this time, he was talking about love. God's love flowing through us. That just as Christ loved, so too do we love. And because we can see his love that's been poured into our hearts flowing through us, we have confidence that we are his. So we do not fear judgment day, but we know that we are Christ. And then lastly, this morning's text, 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now we're going to talk about prayer a little bit this morning because there is some misunderstanding when it comes to prayer and some of the teachings of Jesus about things that we ask for and things that we receive. And so this morning we're going to divide this point up into three different points. Oh man, I thought we were going to get out of here early. Sorry, we'll just put points on top of points. First thing we're going to look at is God hears our prayers for godliness. God hears our prayers for godliness. Think about the context of this letter of 1 John. It's been about assurance. Assurance that you are indeed a child of God. Assurance that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. But throughout this letter, as I said earlier, John has given tests to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. It actually was not to see whether we be in the faith. I misspoke just now. It's actually to assure us that we are in the faith. He was not trying to weed people out. Instead, he was trying to assure those who are in. And so he gives these different tests. We must know the real Jesus. We must evidence loving him by obeying him and also loving him by loving others. And so before we get into this text about prayer, 
want to read to you from the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, a verse many of you know very well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence, the same word that John used four times, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, did you hear that? At what time? Need. That in a time of need, we would find grace to be applied to whatever that situation is. That we can go confidently before the throne of God at any time and receive help in a time of need. And why is that? Because Christ is our mediator. We can come to the throne of grace at any time. And especially, as the writer of Hebrews says, during a time of need. So let's look back to our text. God hears our prayers for godliness. So let's look at verse 14 about how he speaks of how we should pray. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Okay, now, just Bible students, what do you see there, some of the contingencies in prayer? Like, like what is he answering? What are some of the words that John uses here to help us understand how to frame our prayers? Anybody see any of it? In the first part, he says, if we ask anything, how? According to my will? According to your will? According to his will. Now, I want you to stop right there and think for a second. How do we often pray? I mean, even if we actually end with, but not my will be done, but your will be done, how do we normally pray? Lord, I need this now. I want this now. It's my timing now, and it's all according to my will of what I want. John says something very similar that Jesus said, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That his will be done. He says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have. We possess, not that we're going to get, but we have the answer. He's given it to us. That's assurance in prayer. That we can pray and know that he answers prayer. Jesus put it this way. This is John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, now, I'm going to take apart, now this is good practice, go practice at home. I'm going to take apart the Word of God a little bit and see how people can misappropriate the Word of God and interpret it to their own means. In John chapter 14, verse 13, I just read it to you. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. In the very next verse, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's John 14, 14. There are those who claim that they can pray anything and that Jesus will give it to them based upon John 14, 14. 
where Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So saying in Jesus' name is kind of like a little magic bottle or a genie bottle that they're rubbing like that's in Jesus' name and now I get what I want. You all are better Bible students than that. And you know context matters. And so just backing up to the one verse right before it, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Guess what? When we pray things according to his will, those are the things that bring him glory. And when we pray for things that will bring him glory, those are the things that he will do. You following me? So I can't detach verse 14 and say, but I prayed for a Lamborghini in Jesus' name. And I have faith to believe that that's going to happen. It's not understanding God's word. He says, if you pray things that would glorify God, then surely he will answer. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me, if you are living in him for his glory based upon his desires and his words abide in you, knowing his will, discerning his will, what does he delight for you? What does he delight for us, beloved? to bring him glory. That that which he has taken from darkness and made light, that which he has radically saved and transformed would be for his glory. And so anything that we ask to that measure, he will answer and give in abundance. Earlier I quoted John 15, 16, the very beginning of it, but I didn't read it all the way through. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What's he going to give to you? That you would bear fruit, that you would magnify his name, that he would receive all honor and glory from you. This is what John is writing about. He says, look, you have salvation, you have assurance of salvation. And as we look at those tests, the love test and the, the obedience tests, and we go, well, I don't always perfectly pass those tests. Yes, I will attest to that. Oh, I don't always perfectly pass those tests. And I'm looking at it to you, and I know you don't either. And yet what John is saying is we can ask the Father for help. And as we ask him for help, we know that he will answer because it is according to to his will. And what does that do for us? As we live for his glory, does this, John 16, 24. Jesus says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Beloved, you know as well as I do, in the times you can walk in obedience to Christ, there is no better joy. In the times that you've known in the past you have fallen in temptation, and you've done what does not please him, but then you are able to walk by his spirit, you know there is great joy in that. And so we ask. We ask him for help. 
And so what is God's will? How do we know his will? How do we know to pray according to his will? What would you answer? How do you know God's will? I'm looking on many of your laps. I see a whole lot of it. God's will. And so we've learned in this letter over and over again, it's God's will that we love others. And so are there those that you would quote unquote say, it's hard for me to love them. It's hard for me to love that individual. What does John tell us, which Jesus also said the same thing? Ask, seek, knock. Continue to ask the Lord for help. Continue to go to him saying, help me to love them. Look, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he gives us access to his throne of grace that we would receive grace in a time of need. And so we would pray accordingly. Lord, help me to love that person. Help me to humble myself. Help me to forgive. Like Christ has forgiven me. You know, all this comes to perspective. If we go back and look at, he chose us. If you can sit there this morning and realize that you were not worthy to be selected on God's team, to be in Christ, then you are completely humble to know that I need to cry out for mercy and grace and help to live a life that is pleasing to him. But if you sit there and think, but I am worthy, and God should have chosen me, then you have a lot less desire to want to please him because you think you're worthy. But instead, we are to ask according to his will. And so, is it God's will to forgive? Church? Louder? Louder? Okay. Was that painful? It was painful if you know somebody you are not demonstrating forgiveness to. Because you know the will of God. You know it is to forgive as you have been forgiven. And yet some of you may sit there this morning and know that you are living in unforgiveness. John writes, ask according to his will. Jesus said, ask according to my will. Lord, help me to forgive as you have forgiven me. What about, is it God's will to, to serve others? Louder? Louder? Some of you are going, I already know where he's going with this and that's going to get convicting. If it's his will to serve others, even those who are difficult to serve, he says, ask, and you receive. Not you might receive, not that maybe you'll be able to, but you'll be equipped with everything that you need. Anybody else have selfish desires? Hey, we're getting it. Thank you. Selfish desires or lying, one or the other, because some of you didn't say yes. So, Selfish desires. Is it God's will that we deny ourselves? Well, that was like, eh? Eh. Yes. 
the application of this text before us is that, one, we have assurance of our salvation. But when we are concerned of, well, I know there are these tests, the evidence of fruit, and our life is supposed to be lived for the glory of God, he says, ask. Ask. Think about how our prayer lives would radically change if that's the way we prayed instead of, Lord, fix my (laughs) boo-boo. Not that you can't pray for your boo-boo. That's okay. But what John is talking about is living a life, a sanctified life of living for the glory of God, to deny selfish ambition. Lord, you know my heart. You know that I desire fill in the blank. But Lord, help me to put that to death. Have you prayed that prayer? Help me to put it to death. To put to death all carnal desires. And so God hears our prayers for godliness. Where we don't bounce them off a wall and nothing comes back. But John says we have received those answers. That as we pray, we possess the answer. That you have Christ. You have his spirit. That you can walk in holiness. Church, I encourage you, pray God's will. Pray to glorify God. And see the continual transformation in your life. But I want to do the the opposite of that as well. I want to encourage you not to pray for ungodly things. Because God does not hear our prayers for ungodliness. Back in 1 John chapter 3, if you flip over there. 1 John chapter 3 verse 22. John had previously written, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Can you tell me what the opposite of that would be? Anybody able to rewrite that? Whatever we ask, we do not receive from him because we do not keep his commandments and do not do what pleases him. You guys see it? So we're not playing for ungodliness. James would put it very direct in this manner. James would say in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That is the opposite of what John wrote in chapter 3. Let me help you with one commentator, how how he organized this and and, and stated it. One, One commentator put it this way. He said, quote, We can ask absolutely anything of God that is according to his will. Thus, foolish and sinful requests fly like arrows against a brick wall. Prayers for a passing grade on a plagiarized essay. Vengeance on a stingy boss. Or a new spouse who will better understand our love language are three of 300,000 requests that fall dead to the ground. End quote. You ever found yourself praying that way? We're to pray for godliness. How to bless those who persecute us. How to love the unlovable. There's also warnings in Scripture, speaking of prayer, that there could be hindrances to our prayer life. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know one of the first things we should do in prayer? 
Well, some of you that have taught the Acts form of prayer is adoration, praising God for who he is. But secondly, it would be confession. You know, we know that Christ has paid it all, that the work is finished. It is finished. But we are continually to go and confess sin. The word confess just means that we agree that that is sin. Otherwise, our hearts begin to deceive us, and we begin to justify sin. And we begin this downward spiral of sin, and, and our hearts eventually become hardened. And so we go before the Lord, and we confess sin. Peter would even say to husbands and warn husbands that, husbands, your prayers can be hindered if you're not treating your wives right. And so there is a hindrance to prayer. What is it? Ungodliness. And so we pray for godliness. Prayer is about us being conformed into the image of Christ, not him being conformed into our image. We're to pray according to his will, not our will. And lastly this morning, prayers must be those that are never ceasing. We must pray for help constantly. John Bunyan said this, John Bunyan said, quote, prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer, end quote. Did you get it? Either I am crying out to God for help, help me through this temptation, help me in treating this person unkindly and instead grant me the ability to love them as you love me, but if I start to abstain from that, and I don't want to ask God for help anymore, then my heart will become hardened, and my prayer life will diminish. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know those seasons of life. For when you stop praying, all the weight of everything around us yangs up on us and begins to harden our hearts. Again, pray without ceasing. Simple words that the Apostle Paul would pen to the church in Thessalonica. Pray without ceasing. What does that look like? Those of you of driving age, it does not mean you close your eyes and pray while you're driving. As a matter of fact, is it a requirement to close your eyes while you pray? No, it is not. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It does not mean that you are actively verbally or silently praying at all times. It means you are living in constant dependence upon God. It's acknowledging that we can do nothing apart from him. It's confessing our desperate need for him at all times. That's praying without ceasing. Now, I would love to stand up here and tell you I've mastered this. I have not. Nor do I think any of you have. But the encouragement, the exhortation is pray at all times. Keep your minds fixed upon him. About pray for his will to be done. That changes prayer. It means this. As you read your Bible, and perhaps you're going with the church through the reading plan, and as you read, it's not just what passage am I at? Okay, read, check. What next passage? Check. But I'm reading prayerfully. And I'm responding to God in prayer. I don't know if you caught it when Sean was doing our order of worship this morning. He read Romans chapter 12. Anybody catch the prayer he prayed afterwards? It was Romans chapter 12. 
pray according to God's will. As a matter of fact, before we close, turn to Romans 12. We looked at it this morning. Romans 12. Romans 12 begins in verse 1, a very familiar verse to some of you. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? What does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? means to continually die to self, but Paul doesn't leave it up for debate. He gives us that. If you start down at verse 9, let love be genuine. And he says, abhor what is evil. If you're reading this on your own and you're spending time and meditating upon God's word, and you read that, it's a good time to stop and ask the Lord, am I delighting in any form of evil? God, help me to hate what you hate. Help me to love what you love. When we begin to pray like that, we're doing exactly what John has encouraged us in our text this morning. It's exactly what Jesus has taught us as well. To pray according to his will. We read in verse 9, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Church, I want you as you read God's word to start asking questions of the word. If it is something, a direct command like this, stop and ask, am I not loving somebody this way? God, would you show me who I'm not loving with brotherly affection? And you're praying according to his will. And guess what he'll show you? Who you're not loving with brotherly affection. And then what's the very next prayer? I'll wait for it. Don't look at me. I'm going to wait. <laughs> What's the next prayer? Thank you. Help me outdo one another in love. Help me to love them. The same way we come in and listen to a sermon on Sunday could be the same way that we look at our Bibles. And if we're only here and we do not do, we deceive ourselves. We have to read God's word interactively. And we have to ask him for help. We cannot do this in our flesh. It is impossible. But in his spirit, it is completely possible. The very same spirit of God now dwells in his people. He says, I'll do one another in showing honor. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Ask questions. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I mean, you could literally read one verse here and spend a long time in prayer. Lord, help. Lord, I'm going through a hard time. And I know your word tells me to be patient during this time. But I'm having a hard time being patient. Is that the honest truth for any of us? God, help. Help me to honor you in the midst of this. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Oh my goodness, look at verse 14. Don't use a black highlighter. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Do you need God's help? Yes. We need God's help. But if we pray according to his will, he answers those prayers. If we look at things like this in our flesh, we say that is impossible. But not with God. He gives us grace to be able to obey him. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. <laughs> yeah. None of us have that problem, right? Church, if anything comes out of this activity, I am hoping that you are encouraged to slow down when you're doing your Bible reading. To do it prayerfully. To do it reflectively. And to God, ask God for help as you do it. Lord, help me not think that I have the answers or I have the way, but let me to seek you for your truth and your will. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Lord, I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> and Lord, I need grace. I need grace to bless them and not to curse them. I need grace to love them and not to hurt them. This is the prayers. These are the prayers of the believer. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you can cry out, Lord, it hurts. There is pain from the way I've been wronged. Lord, help me to trust you. And continue, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, you know I do not feel like blessing them. Anybody else have feelings? Feelings that are sometimes contrary to the will of God? What John is teaching us in our passage this morning is that we who are his people, who are God's people, have assurance of salvation. And because we are God's people, we also have assurance that God hears our prayers when we ask for help to obey his will. We need to pray. God's will is that his people have assurance. His will is that his people are sanctified. They grow in holiness. His will is that we come to him constantly and ask for help knowing that he will answer. So this morning before I close in prayer, let's just pause for a minute and meditate upon what we've heard from the word of God this morning. Let's take a minute to reflect on that together.